Chapter 1 of The Making of a Bigot This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhys Lawson The Making of a Bigot by Rose McCauley Chapter 1 Cambridge It was Trinity Sunday, full of buttercups and cuckoos and the sun. In Cambridge it was Scarlet Day. In colleges, people struggling through a desert of tripos papers or maize rested their souls for a brief space in a green oasis and took their lunch up the river. In Sunday schools, teachers were telling of the shamrock, that ill-considered and peculiarly inappropriate image conceived by a hard-pressed saint. Everywhere, people were being ordained. Miss Jameson met Eddie Oliver in Petit Curie, while she was doing some house-to-house visiting with a bundle of leaflets that looked like tracts. She looked at him vaguely, then suddenly began to take an interest in him. Of course, she said with decision, you've got to join too. Rather, he said, tell me what it is. I'm sure it's full of truth. It's the National Service League. I'm a working associate and I'm persuading people to join. It's a good thing, really. Were you at the meeting yesterday? No, I missed that. I was at another meeting, in point of fact. I often am, you know. He said it with a touch of mild perplexity. It was so true. She was turning over the sheaf of tracts. Let me see which will meet your case. Leaflet M. The modern Sisyphus. That's a picture one. And more for the poor. So simple and graphic. P is better for you. Have you ever thought what war is? And what it would be like to have it raging round your own home? Have you ever thought what your feelings would be if you heard that an enemy had landed on these shores and you knew that you were ignorant of the means by which you could help to defend your country and your home? You probably think that if you're a member of a rifle club and know how to shoot, you have done all that is needed. But, well, you haven't. And so on, you know. You'd better take P. And Q. Q says, are you a liberal? Then join the League, because... etc. Are you a Democrat? Are you a Socialist? Are you a Conservative? Are you... Yes, said Eddie. I'm everything of that sort. It won't be able to think anything I'm not. She thought he was being funny. Though he wasn't, he was speaking the simple truth. Anyhow, she said, you'll find good reasons there why you should join, whatever you are. Just think, you know... Suppose the Germans landed. She supposed that for a little, then got on to physical training and military discipline. How important they are. Eddie said when she paused, Quite. I think you are utterly right. He always did when anyone explained anything to him. He was like that. He had a receptive mind. You can become, said Miss Jameson, getting to the gist of the matter, a guinea member, or a penny adherent, or a shilling associate, or a more classy sort of associate that pays five shillings and gets all kinds of literature. I'll be that, said Eddie Oliver, who liked nearly all kinds of literature. 
So, Miss Jameson got out her book of vouchers on the spot and enrolled him, receiving five shillings and presenting a blue button on which was inscribed the remark, The path of duty is the path of safety. So true, said Eddie. A jolly good motto, a jolly good league. I'll tell everyone I meet to join. There'll be another meeting, said Miss Jameson. Next Thursday. Of course you'll come. We want a good audience this time, if possible. We never have one, you know. There'll be lantern slides illustrating invasion as it would be now, and invasion as it would be were the National Service League bill passed. Tremendously exciting. Eddie made a note of it in his Cambridge Pocket Diary, a small and profusely inscribed volume without which he never moved, as his engagements were numerous and his head not strong. He wrote below June 8th, N.S.L., 8pm, Guildhall, small room. For the same date he had previously inscribed, Fabians, 7.15, Victoria Assembly Rooms, ECU protest meeting, Guildhall, large room 215, and Primrose League fate, Great Shelford Manor, 3pm. He belonged to all these societies, they are also utterly right, and many others more esoteric, and led a complex and varied life full of faith and hope. With so many right points of view in the world, so many admirable, if differing faiths, whither he demanded, might not humanity rise? Himself, he joined everything that came his way, from vegetarian societies to heretic clubs and ritualist guilds. All for him were full of truth. This attitude of omni-acceptance sometimes puzzled and worried less receptive and more single-minded persons. They were known at times even to accuse him with tragic injustice of insincerity. When they did so, he saw how right they were. He entirely sympathised with their point of view. At this time, he was nearly 23, and nearly at the end of his Cambridge career. In person, he was a slight youth, with intelligent hazel eyes under sympathetic brows, and easily ruffled brown hair, and a general air of receptive impressionability, clad not unsuitably in grey flannels, and the soft hat of the year. Soft hats vary importantly from age to age. He strolled down King's Parade. There he met a man of his own college. This was liable to occur in King's Parade. The man said he was going to tea with his people, and Eddie was to come too. Eddie did so. He liked the Denisons. They were full of generous enthusiasm for certain things, not, like Eddie himself, for everything. They wanted votes for women, and liberty for distressed Russians, and spinning looms for everyone. They had inspired Eddie to want these things too. He belonged, indeed, to societies for promoting each of them. On the other hand, they did not want tariff reform, or conscription, or prayer book revision, for they seldom read the prayer book. And if they had known that Eddie belonged also to societies for promoting these objects, they would have remonstrated him. Professor Denison was a quiet person who said little, but listened to his wife and children. He had much sense of humour and some imagination. He was fifty-five. Mrs. Denison was a small and engaging lady, a tremendous worker in good causes. She had little sense of humour and a vivid, if often misapplied, imagination. She was forty-six. Her son Arnold was tall, lean, cynical, intelligent, 
edited a university magazine, the most interesting of them, was president of a conversation society, and was just going into his uncle's publishing house. He had plenty of sense of humour. If he had less, he would have bored himself to death. And an imagination kept with due bounds. He was 23. His sister, Marjorie, was also intelligent, but, notwithstanding this, had recently published a book of verse. Some of it was not so bad as a great many people's verse. She also designed wallpapers, which, on the whole, she did better. She had an unequal sense of humour, keen in certain directions, blunt in others. Like most people's, the same description applies to her imagination. She was 22. Eddie and Arnold found them having tea in the garden, with two brown undergraduates and a white one. The Denisons belonged to the East and West Society, which tries to effect a union between the natives of these two quarters of the globe. It has conversazioni, at which the brown men congregate at one end of the room and the white men at the other, and both, one hopes, are happy. This afternoon, Mrs. Denison and her daughter were each talking to a brown young man, Downing and Christ's, and the white young man, Trinity Hall, was being silent with Professor Denison, because East is East and West is West, and never the twain shall meet, and really, you can't talk to blacks. Arnold joined the West. Eddie, who belonged to the above-mentioned society, helped Miss Denison to talk to her blacks. Rather soon, the East went and the West became happier. Mrs. Denison said, Dorothy Jameson came round this afternoon wanting us to join the National Service League or something. Mrs. Denison said, snippily, Dorothy ought to know better. At the same moment that Eddie had said, it's a jolly little league, apparently, quite full of truth. The hall man said that his governor was a secretary or something at home, and kept having people down to speak at meetings, so he and the Denisons argued about it until Marjorie said, Oh, well, of course, you're hopeless. But I don't know what Eddie means by it. You don't want to encourage militarism, surely, Eddie. Eddie said, surely, yes, shouldn't one encourage everything? But really, and no ragging, Marjorie persisted. He didn't belong to a thing like that. Eddie showed his blue button. Rather, I do. Have you ever thought what war is, and what it would be like to have it raging around your home? Are you a Democrat? Then join the League. Idiot, said Marjorie, who knew him well enough to call him so. He believes in everything, I believe in nothing, Arnold explained. He accepts... I refuse. He likes three lumps of sugar in his tea. I like none. He had better be a journalist and write for the Daily Mail, the Clarion, and the Spectator. What are you going to do when you go down, Marjorie asked Eddie, suspiciously. Eddie blushed because he was going for a time to work in a church settlement. A man he knew was a clergyman there, and had convinced him that it was his duty and he must. The Denisons did not care about church settlements, only secular ones. That, and because he had clear pale skin that showed everything, was why he blushed. I'm going to work with some men in Southwark, he said, embarrassed. Anyhow, for a time, help with the boys' clubs, you know, and so on. Parsons, inquired Arnold, and Eddie admitted it, whereupon Arnold changed the subject. He had no concern with Parsons. The Denisons were so shocked at Eddie that they let the hall man talk about the South African match for quite two minutes. 
they were probably afraid that if they didn't, Eddie might talk about the CICCU, which would be infinitely worse. Eddie was perhaps the only man at the moment in Cambridge who belonged simultaneously to the CICCU, the Church Society, and the Heretics. It may be explained, for the benefit of the uninitiated, that the CICCU is low church, and the Church Society is high church, and the Heretics is no church at all. They are all admirable societies. Arnold said presently, interrupting the match, If I keep a second-hand bookshop in Soho, will you help me, Eddie? Eddie said he would like to. It will be awfully good training for both of us, said Arnold. You'll see much more life that way, you know, than at your job in Southwark. Arnold had manfully overcome his distaste for alluding to Eddie's job in Southwark in order to make a last attempt to snatch a brand from the burning. But Eddie, thinking he might as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb, said... You see, my people rather want me to take orders, and the Southwark job is by way of finding out if I want to or not. I'm nearly sure I don't, you know, he added apologetically, because the Denisons were looking so badly disappointed in him. Mrs. Denison said kindly, I think I should tell your people straight out that you can't. It's a tiresome little jar, I know, but honestly, I don't believe it's a bit of use, members of a family pretending that they see life from the same angle when they don't. Eddie said, oh, but I think we do, in a way, only... It was really rather difficult to explain. He did indeed see life from the same angles as the rest of his family, but from many other angles as well, which was confusing. The question was, could one select some one thing to be, clergyman or anything else, unless one was very sure that it implied no negations, no exclusions of the other angles? That was perhaps what his life in Southwark would teach him. Most of the clergy round his own home, and his father being a dean, he knew many, hadn't, it seemed to him, learnt the art of acceptance. They kept drawing lines, making sheep and goat divisions like the Denison's. The hall man, feeling a little embarrassed because they were getting rather intimate and personal, and probably would like to get more so if he were not there, went away. He had had to call on the Denisons, but they weren't his sort, he knew. Miss Denison and her parents frightened him, and he didn't get on with girls who dressed artistically or wrote poetry. And Arnold Denison was a conceited crank, of course. Oliver was a good sort, only very thick with Denison's for some reason. If he was Oliver, and wanted to do anything so dull as slumming with Parsons in Southwark, he wouldn't be put off by anything the Denison's said. "'Why don't you get your tie to match your socks, Eddie?' Arnold asked with a yawn when Egerton had gone. His mother, a hospitable lady and kind to Egerton's and all others who came to her house, told him not to be disagreeable. Eddie said truly that he wished he did, and that it was a capital idea and looked charming. Egerton's do look rather charming quite often, Marjorie conceded. I suppose that's something after all. Mrs. Denison added, exquisite herself, she had a taste for neatness. Their hair and their clothes are always beautifully brushed, which is more than yours are, Arnold. Arnold lay back with his eyes shut and groaned gently. Egerton had fatigued him very much. Eddie thought it was rather nice of Mrs. Denison and Marjorie to be kind about Egerton, because he had been to tea. 
he realised that he himself was the only person there who was neither kind nor unkind about Egerton, because he really liked him. This the Denisons would have hopelessly failed to understand, or probably to believe. If he had mentioned it, they would have thought he was being kind too. Eddie liked a number of people who were ranked by the Denisons among the goats, even the rowing men of his own college, which happened to be a college where one didn't row. Mrs. Denison asked Eddie if he would come to lunch on Thursday to meet some of the Irish players whom they were putting up for the week. The Denisons, being intentionally English and strong home rulers, felt, besides the artistic admiration for the Abbey Theatre players common to all, a political enthusiasm for them as nationalists, so putting three of them up was delightful hospitality. Eddie, who shared both artistic and the political enthusiasm, was delighted to come to lunch. Unfortunately, he would have to hurry away afterwards to the Primrose League fate at Great Shelford, but he did not mention this. Consulting his watch, he found he was even now due at a meeting of a Sunday games club to which he belonged, so he said goodbye to the Denisons and went. Mad as a hatter was Arnold's languid comment on him when he had gone, but well-intentioned. But, said Marjorie, I can't gather that he intends anything at all. He's so absurdly indiscriminate. He intends everything, her father interpreted. You all, in this intense generation, intend much too much. Oliver carries it a little further than most of you, that's all. His road to his ultimate destination is most remarkably well paved. Oh, poor boy, said Mrs. Denison, remonstrating. She went in to finish making arrangements for a suffrage meeting. Marjorie went to her studio to hammer jewellery for the Arts and Crafts exhibition. Professor Denison went to his study to look over tripos papers. Arnold lay in the garden and smoked. He was the least energetic of his family and not industrious. End of chapter one. Recorded by Reese Lawson.